We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. Hello, this is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast and I'm Mean Lean from ArsenalVision.co.uk. In today's show, Elliot, Paul and Tim will be talking about the uh, late, late, late 1-0 victory away to Burnley. A very hard-fought victory at that. Um, not much to say apart from I thought we'd, we deserved the win, uh, as tough as it was. And, and as well as Burnley played defensively, there was one team who were forcing the issue and... Um, We've got a bit of luck. We've got a bit of luck a few times this season and long may that continue. So not much else to say, really. It's nice to see when we're playing good football, we can win comfortably and play really well entertaining. But it's also great to see that when we're not on our game offensively and uh, players look a bit tired, we can still dig it out. After Champions League match, uh, three matches in a week, players quite clearly tired. We managed to pull it out of the bag. So that's a good sign. Anyway, enjoy the podcast. Back after the international break. Ah, such a bad time. Again, next up is um, Swansea at home. So, uh, yeah. See you then. Goal of the season candidate means cows didn't die in vain. This is the Arsenal Vision Post-Match Podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, and you can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. I am proud, as ever, to be joined by Paul. You can find him on Twitter at Pause and in My Pants. Hello, Pause. Woohoo! And I am joined by the man who had a front row seat to the end of one bovine life and the end of Burnley's life. Uh, it is Tim. You can find him on Twitter at Stilberto. Hello, Tim. Hello there. Hello there, indeed. That's right. It was a, a, a tough day to be a cow or a Burnley fan, uh, as it turned out. Uh, if, in case you're saying, why do you keep mentioning cows? Tim, why do I keep mentioning cows? 
Okay, so this um, settle in for this one. This this relates to um, my if, personal. If they're listening to, the to this pod, they already took for granted they need to settle in, my friend. <laughs> we yeah, got true, that covered. True. <laughs> and um, amazingly, this story seems to have resonated. So my tweets ended up in the Sun, the Metro, the Guardian, and the Mirror um, about this. So what happened was. Um, for those of you not familiar with the geography of England, uh, Burnley is a small town. Um, that is not country, in Europe. <laughs> that's not Europe. Um, and in a country the size of England, it's, it's a relatively long way away. It's about a four and a half, five hour drive. And there are no direct trains from London. Um, those of you that live in countries like America and Canada will be like four hours. That's, you know, that's local. Um but anyway, so we were on a train to Leeds because there are no direct trains from London to Burnley, chuntering along quite nicely. And then we got to a place called Biggleswade, which is north of Hertfordshire, uh, about close to an hour outside of London. Are you just making ground- up places to test our, our knowledge <laughs> of England? <laughs> I, I'd never heard of Biggleswade either, really, until I ended up sat on the platform at Biggleswade train station for two and a bit hours. But... Um, so we ground to a halt and we were told there was something on the line, which is never good news. And then we were told there are animals on the line, to which we were like, what kind of animals? Because, you know, if if like we've got ducks, then that should be solvable pretty quickly. <laughs> but <laughs> but if, if we've got, you know, something else that's, you know, I, I don't know, like a wildebeest or a hippo, that might be a bit more of a problem. Um so anyway, they eventually told us there were cows on the line and um, it transpired that what had happened was the train ahead of us, um, basically a, a herd of cows had wandered onto the line and 11 of them met um, a, a sad end uh, because they were hit by the train, which which then had to stop. I shouldn't really laugh about this. It's, it's, it's a terrible way for a cow's life to end. Um, even though their life was probably going to end in tragic circumstances. I, I was, anyway. was going to say there are very few good ways for a cow's life to end yeah. these days. And so the train uh, incurred a bit of damage, um, and so they had to stop it and basically fix it and clean it up. And um, and so, yeah, we we sat, we had a connection at Leeds, and we were due in at Burnley at quarter past two for a half past four kickoff. Um, because it's a Sunday, there was only one train an hour from Leeds, um, and basically, I think we were due in to Leeds, you know, around about just after 12, about quarter past 12 or something like that. And now the last train we could get from Leeds to make the game was at eight minutes past three. So we could absorb about a two and a half hour delay. Um, but then we sat there for more than two hours. Um, I'm fortunate enough to go to away games with someone who works as a train planner. So he had his work phone out and he was he was able to look at what the trains ahead of us were doing. And we'd sat there for two hours and he said, nothing ahead of us has moved yet. So slowly, slowly, it dawned on us that we probably weren't going to make the game. And um, and then there was an announcement to say, sorry, the train's got to turn back to London. And by this point, it was about 20 to 1, I think. And so, you know, we were looking at being back in London after 1 o'clock and that just completely rules out getting to the game by any means whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So we were a bit depressed. But then they changed their mind and said, actually, the train's going to go to Peterborough, which was the next scheduled stop. 
And we thought they were just going to, so Peterborough Station, there were no trains, there were thousands of people stuck there. And we just thought, great, the train's just going to go to Peterborough. It's going to pick up loads of people and drive us back to London again. Um, but then we got to Peterborough and the train announcer said, right, um, we've got a chance. Um, we might be able to carry on to Leeds. And uh, my friend, the train planner, said what they mean by that is basically the driver has already done his hours. And it's basically down to whether he's willing to do the overtime and drive because he's well within his rights to stop because he's done his four hours work, basically. Um, so thank you to the driver who decided the overtime was worth it. And he drove to Leeds and they were announcing the times that the trains were due in. And the train was due in at Leeds at 14.58. So this leaves us a 10 minute window to get our connection. So any further delay, and we're we're in big trouble. And um, this, is, this is basically the same plot as Speed with Keanu Reeves, <laughs> isn't it? Except we did stay still for quite a long time. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so so the opposite. <laughs> and so we reached Leeds at fifteen oh four, and we mm-hmm. had to cross the platform and run for the fifteen oh eight to take us to Burnley, and we made it by thirty seconds and. Then the train came into Burnley at quarter past four. It's an 18-minute walk from the station to the ground. Uh, happily, it's downhill, which made it much easier to run, um, particularly because I'd had six or seven beers by this point. So I, I kind of sprinted down this hill and uh, to the stadium, and I got to my seat just as the match kicked off. It was an absolute miracle because, I, frankly, I'd given up. And even a little part of me, when they said um, the train's going back to London, I was almost a little bit relieved because I was starting to give up on the idea that we were going to make it to the game. And that just, like, killed all the tension and the anxiety, you know? It was like, oh, <laughs> right. I can stop yeah. worrying about it now. Like, you know, it's clean kill, going back to London, no chance. But then when they said we're going to Peterborough, it's like, oh, maybe we've still got a chance. And that kind of bladder-crushing tension... <laughs> kind of crept back in and stayed with me basically until the 92nd minute. Nice. I I, I would say <laughs> in the end, though, you got three points and probably a couple months worth of stakes out of it. So all's well that ends well. Wasn't it spooky? Can, can, did it occur to you that that's a spooky number of cows that were presenting a parked bus to 11. that train? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 11 cows Not 10. Blo- blocking the train's progress. Not 12. Yeah. Um, and, you, and, you know, um, they said that there are 15 cows missing as well um, from this farmer's herd. So about 26 wandered off. And I, I don't know how you I, identify missing cows because I, I don't know. They, they, they all look pretty similar. They, brand, they? they brand them. <laughs> but, but also I did read that cows apparently get very, very stressed when they're separated from their herd. They get very, very anxious and unhappy. I, I'm just going to so. tell you, we've exceeded the length of time people are willing to listen to any of us talk about cows. So <laughs> I don't think so. I think that's fair. All right, fine. That's... This is the Bovine Vision podcast. <laughs> My name is Elliot. No. Uh, okay. Well, thank you for listening this week. We'll be back in two weeks after the international break. Um, let's talk about the match as much as we might be loath to do it. Tim made it there, in case you didn't get that from that story. It was mostly about cows. Um, And when we got there, we stayed unchanged with the exception of our regular goalkeeper coming back in. So, you know, really, uh, the third game in eight days for most of these players, uh, a chance to keep the momentum going and get get into the international break 
you know, on on track, and especially with City dropping points um, to I don't remember who, some team from somewhere. Uh, it, it really did present us a big opportunity, and this is one of those tricky fixtures. Uh, where you know you're going to be against a team that's well-organized, well-drilled, behind good home support, that's going to defend deep. It's it's all the things that can be challenging to us. And to be fair, we made heavy weather of it. But, Paul, I am taking the weird position of actually thinking we were pretty decent and that most of our problems... Yeah, I know. I know, came in the final third. But So let's talk about where the breakdown was. For you, the fir- you know, the first half... We struggled. There was a lot of huffing and puffing and failed to to really create the clear chances. What did you see as being the difference and the challenge that we faced in this match versus what we've seen previous? Um, my mind in this match... So I was not shocked at all that we were very flat. In fact, uh, that I was, I was going to tweet before the match, never got around to it. I expected to be underwhelmed in this... And I thought we kind of scraped through. Um, you know, there's there's the factor of Burnley. I think they're like five goals conceded in their last 17 matches at home. So there's that side of it. And on our side, the last couple of games, there's been an energy from the way the other side plays and comes at us. And in this game, where we're going to get very little from the other side. And we're going to have to generate it ourselves. And I thought we, it was just going to seem a bit flat to the the team who are used to having the opportunities. And you talked about it uh, on the last pod. You were asking, you know, what happens when this team comes up against a park bus? So uh, significantly different. You and I talked about it. And I thought we'd, I didn't necessarily think we'd do better in this game. I thought we would do better generally against a park bus than we did. Uh, the, the movement was poor. Where, where did it break down? See, for me, I, I thought it was the, the key contributors from previous matches, Ozil, Walcott, Awobi. I thought all of them were really poor in the final third. I thought Walcott was okay. I thought, I think Awobi is used to, I mean, when you look at how many players they had back in the box, not just back, um, I, I think for a young guy, He's just never really encountered that level of, you know, Goliath standing in the box, blocking his way. I mean, it was they had a phenomenal number of players in that box. I mean, that was that was dense. Um, I thought Alexis did well. I thought Theo did okay. Uh, For me, the issue was twofold. We didn't use the width well. now, part of that was not having a target man, but there are other ways to use with. There's getting in behind, and we didn't. We not, on zero occasions did we get to the byline. There was width to be had. I don't think. I think from midfield we should have looked for that ball, uh, and didn't. And I think at Bellerin and Montreal's position in particular, they didn't take those positions that allowed them to run in behind and get. That's. Unless you have a big guy in the box, that was the only way Arsenal was going to get in into them, apart from some brilliant play down the middle. And I just don't think that was an option. I think the reason our movement started to look so poor after a while was because there's that part of your brain that says, listen, I'd keep moving if there was any fucking point. You know, the passes aren't finding you. You're not finding any gaps. So for me, I think we mo- we used the width very poorly tactically. Um 
And then the second big issue for me in that game was the bench. You know, 70 minutes, you turn around and you bring on Big Ollie. Well, there's no Big Ollie. You bring mm-hmm. on little Oxlade Chamberlain out of full, out of form and El Nenny, who, you know, I think he did okay. And I, I saw the logic of it. And I, I think he gave us some energy. But I don't think, you know, those are your two dream changes in a scenario like that. I think... I think it was just um, fresh legs. I mean, I really think that was what yeah, it fell down yeah, to. Yeah, I think that's right. Now, we did argue uh, on WhatsApp, and we don't need we'll to We'll get into it. Let, let's, let's put that on hold for a second and, yeah, and bounce but, around but a little bit. I'll just briefly say I would have – the second substitution I would have liked to had off our bench was Coquelin just to kind of stir it up a bit, and okay. we'll come back to it later um, on. Those are my th- – th- that's where I think uh, – the game went wrong. That's fair. I yeah. mean, look, we put in, what, uh, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 20, 20, 21 crosses in the match. Um, we were accurate with three of them. So three of 21. Not fantastic. But we passed the ball all over the place. We, we completed tons of passes, including a lot of passes in the final third. I mean, Santa Cazorla was 102 of 104. 102 yeah. complete passes of 104 attempts. Um, Granite Shaka completed 76 passes at a 91% clip. Um, Mesodozal, 80 passes at a 90% clip. I mean, I felt that we moved the ball through the midfield just fine, and, and our vertical passes in deep midfield were effective, and where we were really let down was just what we did on the final third. I thought there was a little bit of um, maybe fatigue, arguably, in, in that there was less movement. I thought we were a little more static uh, in the final third particularly Walcott. I thought he wasn't making some of the hurtful runs and and really finding space like he had been in recent matches. But we also had chances. I mean, Ozil had chances where he blasted the ball, you know, in out of, out of play. I mean, Iwobi took a shot that went out for a throw-in. Um, Walcott had a miss. But, you know, interestingly, I read that Alexis Sanchez created more chances in this match than any other player in the Premier League this weekend. So, Nine or something? Yeah, I mean, he had eight key passes. It, this this was not a game, in my opinion, where we were just bad. Um, I've seen worse. You know, Tim, a game that comes to mind for me last season as being really dreadful was the Swansea performance at home. You remember the one I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. Just really lethargic, no energy, seeded the impetus to them, and and just a lot of really sort of pointless lateral passing around midfield, I thought we moved the ball effectively from back to front here and that things broke down when it came to the final ball, the final chance. I mean, we actually had some counterattacking opportunities in this game where we just kept making the wrong choice. You know, a player would yeah. take a, a shot from 18 when he had players on the flank to deliver it to, or we'd try to play the whipped-in cross when the pullback was on. Um, is it possible that some of the grousing about this performance is just down to the level of performance we've been treated to in the previous three or four matches definitely definitely I, I completely agree with you I think this was um, a kind of a fine margins performance where there wasn't an awful lot technically wrong with what we did and um, I think possibly just because I was exceptionally grateful to actually be at the game I, I viewed it quite generously um, because people around me, you know, obviously everyone's getting frustrated and usually I think I would in that scenario. But I was I was kind of saying, I think we're right to do what we're doing, to kind of keep trying to pick the lock. Um, interestingly, I, while we 
I take the point we didn't really have enough on the bench. I I don't think sending Giroud on would have done anything better. When Giroud played at Turf Moor a couple of seasons ago, he just got pinned because Burnley's centre-backs are perfectly equipped to handle a player of his qualities. And I think an on-form Oxlade-Chamberlain would have been a brilliant substitution, someone to run at people and try and pull them out of position. Not sure he exists um, much anymore, but okay. <laughs> not, yeah, no. Um, but, but maybe Ren Adelaide would have been better. But Jim, isn't it a little different, though, I I hear your point on Giroud, but it's a little different when he comes on for the last twenty and yeah. you got yeah, got them true. under the gun and you're banging in crosses. That's true. That's true. When it all um, starts to be a little bit more chaos and balls into the box as you're desperate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um and I suppose that's where our goal came from, really. Um, but you know before that though, I and I take the point. You know, Wenger said after the game, it, it wasn't just about you know Burnley's defending, but he said something I think is very, very true when you watch them. They're, they are very efficient with what little of the ball they have. They use it very, very well. Um, and they, you know, not just with set pieces, but on counters. For a team who, you know, we saw the way they set up against Liverpool and um, we knew we were, we were going to be in for the same thing, but they showed against Liverpool. They had like two or three shots on target in the whole game and they won 2-0 and they, they could have done that to us. But at the same time, I was kind of saying to people around me and that I was sitting with, you know, if that Alexis volley, that, you know, yeah. ends up brushing the post, if that goes in or Walcott shot before that, which, you know, what, what else do you want Walcott to do in that scenario? That's, he did exactly the right thing and he nearly pulled it off. And you just think it was always going to be one of those games, I think, where I've, I think I predicted 1-0. I thought it'd be slightly more... A bit more like the last 1-0 win at Burnley where we got the goal quite early and then controlled the game. I didn't think it would be this late and frantic, but I always thought this was going to be a game where we'd be restricted and we'd just have to be smart with the chances that we got. Absolutely. Um, and, and, <laughs> What's wrong with and, that? <laughs> exactly, yeah. And to your point about um, you know, our, our build-up play, I, I think that... and it, and. And you're both quite right. It did start to go kind of wrong with the front four. Um, but I do think on this occasion, that's just because that's where all the players were. That's where all the traffic was. And a big part of the reason the likes of Kazola and, and Granite Jacker completed, you know, so many passes was because they were playing in a part of the pitch where there weren't any Burnley players. They weren't coming under pressure. They were sitting quite deep. 100, 102 out of 104 is one of those fishy numbers where you kind of got to just hit it back and forward with the goalkeeper to get that kind of level. Yeah, 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 yeah. Certainly a lot of, of Santi's passes would have been like that. And, and and actually Burnley did start the game quite high up um, the pitch and they gradually dropped towards the end of the first half. And even though the quality of our game wasn't good in the first half, I kind of the last few minutes, I thought they're they're really starting to drop deep now, and actually they they stayed like that for the whole second half. We did kind of pin them back. It's just we couldn't move them around enough um, in the final third. But I always felt it was just going to be one of those games where we weren't going to create lots and lots of clear cut chances like we did against Basel and even to an extent against Chelsea. It was just never going to be that type of game, and I, I don't think there was very little in it that surprised me. Yeah, I mean, look, we have struggled against recently promoted teams at times. We have struggled away. Um, this is not, I don't think, an easy place to just go play free-flowing football and expect to get a result. And, you know, I mean, 
Alexis Sanchez had shots saved point blank that he smashed into the keeper. And, you know, as we talked about, it will be sent a, a shot out for a throw in. And Theo took a shot that I can remember from the top of the area when he had players on either side of him wide open. I mean, we created opportunities both in the counterattack and from sort of build up against their settled back seven. <laughs> um, they started to defend deeper and deeper in their own penalty area at the end of the first half, and I thought there might be a goal coming. There were a lot of times when it felt like we were right on the brink, and I just don't get the feeling that this was a terrible performance. I mean, we completed 637 of our 741 passes, 86%. We completed 300, uh, pardon me, 224 passes in the attacking third, 26 of 49 inside the penalty area. Um, almost a thousand touches in the game. I mean, this was a dominant performance in some ways. I just think it lacked sharpness in the final third. And that's when you have to just get a little lucky bounce, get something to go your way. I mean, sometimes the bounces do go your way and sometimes they don't. And while you could say we were lucky with the no handball call um, for the goal, I thought we were unlucky not to get a handball penalty awarded to us just previously. You know, we had 67% possession, and you know, I realize some of these numbers, passing stats and possession stats, can be done with, uh, what's the word we look at, the word for possession, the bad kind of possession? Um, Stagnant, sta- stale. Or, uh, sterile. Um, sterile possession, yeah, thank you. Um, I knew it was a sex thing. But, you know, I, I just don't, I don't see it this way. So one of the things that I, I wanted to bring on the podcast from our offline discussion is, just how the central midfield partnership is working. And I am a huge fan of uh, Granite Shaka. And I saw some comments online that he was not great in this game. And I couldn't disagree more. I thought he was exceptional. And the reason I thought that is the things he did in this game to collect the ball from the back four and either carry the ball a few yards or make that vertical pass. And he he did very little... I mean, he, he did pass the ball laterally at times. Of course, you know, when you complete that many passes at that high percentage, that's going to happen. But I think what he does is he stitches things together. He gets into that space in the center of midfield where he can collect off the defenders and then distribute forward um, vertically to Ozil or Cazorla or uh, a Walcott or Alexis Awobi. And that's something that in these games you have to do. Otherwise, they can just stay in front of you and you can wind up passing the ball back and forth along the midfield stripe the whole game. Paul, you really prefer Francis Coughlin's contribution so far to what you've seen from Shaka so far. So what I want to ask you is, what do you, what do you perceive as the strength that Coughlin brings to the team that we don't get from Granite Shaka? So uh, I, would, I would modify that a little bit. I liked Shaka's performance yesterday. I thought he was pretty good. I still don't think he's up to full... Uh, his full measure yet. I think he's still finding the pace of the game, his, his finding his own kind of aggressiveness, finding his, his connections to the other players. You know, I thought he did pretty good yesterday. Uh, I thought in the first half, he had a number of loose passes that didn't really help our rhythm, but I would, I certainly wouldn't knock him. Is I, I, I'd like to make that clear. It's not a knock of him. It's a knock of where he's at in terms of his betting into the field, into the, the team um i i mean again long term wise i like i like the idea of chaka and how we should be able to play with him i like control i like you know intelligence 
clever passing, you know, that that balance he provides, the the control, calmness, vision, it's all great. I just don't think he's quite there yet. And for a game like yesterday, one of the things we really struggled was anybody to fecking break them down. And one of the things Coquelin will do, yes, he's a bit hit and miss. I think he's mostly hit. I think with his passing, it's a bit inconsistent, but it's very progressive uh, or aggressive. You know, he does pass between the lines. Uh, he mightn't be the guy you want to drop deep and pick up the ball, but, you know, we talked about that yesterday. That's, in a way, that's a false argument because when he plays, Santi drops deep to pick up the ball. So we got that. Uh, we got a nice range of passing from Santi. These days, Cockland's going to take that ball upfield. He's going to get stuck in, you know, he's going to get into a duel. He's going to force a turnover. He's going to stir things up. You know, people complain about him charging into the box, and I kind of agree, you know, what's the point? Because he's not going to finish it. But he doesn't need to finish. He just needs to stir it up in the box, and that's going to happen with him. He's going to make something happen. And yes, especially with such a lack of, uh, I mean, I agree with your and Tim's analysis that maybe it was a bit deceptive, but there was a kind of a, a lack of a spark. And that's something that nine times out of ten, even if nobody else is sparking, he's going to get stuck in and he's going to make something happen and he's going to bring in energy to the rest of the team. And, you know, in a kind of Roy Keenish, I know he doesn't have the abilities of Roy Keane, but in a Roy Keane kind of way, he's going to make something happen on a day like that. Even though on paper, X's and O's, you know, your Chakas of this world, you know, that's who you play away from home. I'm sorry, I've seen plenty of games where Coquelin's done well in those games away from home against a park bus because there's still shit to make happen. So um, uh, I really felt we struggled in the energy. The the chaos is the Sonogo word, so that kind of gets people rolling their eyes. But that stirring things up, that provoker, uh, would have been very helpful yesterday. Something a little mm -hmm. different. Uh, I mean, it's great having... Chak as a passer, it really is, but he's one more passer. It's kind of like the Arsenal's full of technical little midfielders. Um, we are, which is good. Sometimes you don't need a tenth passer. Sometimes you need somebody who brings something a little different. So, um, not a purist's approach, I grant you. And ultimately, you know, I, I think Chaka should be the guy. I just think the crossover point might be approaching. It's not here yet. I would have liked Coquelin to start yesterday. Would have loved to him for him to come off the bench at 70 minutes. That's that's kind of my feeling on it. Okay. I mean, uh, Tim, what about you? I mean, what what is your take on what Shaka contributes versus Coquelin, and in particular what you saw from him in this game? Um, I don't have too much to add to uh, to what Paul said. I, I think um, the main thing I'd, I'd pull out of that is that um, I think I felt like yesterday in particular was a game where we really needed to move them around. Um, and actually, um, some of our, our better, not well, not chances in the end, because as you alluded to, quite often the final ball was off. But um, some of our better, more promising moves came from kind of turnovers high up the pitch. I'm pretty sure that Walcott shot came from someone making an interception or it might just have been a, a mislaid pass by a Burnley player. And I felt we were missing that a little bit yesterday and what what Granite Jacker brings, you know, I think is very, very good. And I and I think with what we've brought into the team recently, because Mustafi is another mm. kind of line breaking passer. Kashelny's always been like that. Jacker does that because Ola can pass the ball anywhere. 
So all of a sudden we've got this collection of players who are very, you know, they play um, a bit like a, this is something that Tony Adams was very, very underrated at. He was, a, he was a real prompter for rhythm. The way he passed the ball out of the back was always with purpose and forwards and it kind of set the motion for the attack. And I think we've got a few players like that. And I, I, I completely agree with your point about him, you know, playing the ball forwards and playing it into those pockets of space to our attacking players. Um, where I thought his passing was sloppy, actually, were the more routine sideways passes. Um, I would wager that that's where his 10% went on quite simple routine passes. And I think that's why he was taken off for El Nenny, who, whilst not as adventurous a passer, um, isn't going to lose you the ball. Um, and I think that was behind that substitution. I think there was possibly an element of frustration from the manager that, that Jack had given away some fairly simple passes, which is frustrating because the ones he was playing forward were all hitting the mark. Um, so I, I I think in the long term um, Jacker will bring exactly what we've been missing probably since you know since Arteta was just not capable of playing anymore and he should be able to do it to an even higher level um, I agree with Paul I just don't think he's quite there yet I'm, I'm perfectly calm about it it will get there with games um, but I, I, I did feel that yesterday actually was a, was a game that that we could have really done with Coquelin, um, actually. But, you know, when we perhaps when we play Swansea in two weeks, um, maybe Granite Jacker's qualities will be much more useful to us. And I do think in the long term he will he will make that spot his own. But I agree with Paul. I, I'm not sure if it's a wavelength thing at the moment or, you know, a, a coming up to speed thing. It's, it's probably a mixture of all of those things. And it, the pleasing thing is you get the sense there's a lot more to come and that's that's mm. why I'm quite calm about it. Whereas with Coquelin, although Coquelin, you know, he's he has developed and he has given us, you know, he's given us different things because we're effectively playing him in a different position compared to even six months ago and that shows signs that his game is developing. But I think probably Granite Jack has just got a fair bit more to develop. Yeah, okay. I mean, I... I... Look, I do think he has more to develop, but I, I think the interesting thing, if you look at past maps from the game, is that he and Cazorla wound up occupying a lot of the same area. This is the most advanced the two of them have played. There wasn't a clear holder. Um, he passed the ball to Cazorla 20 times. That was his most, and his second most was Mustafi. He kind of you know, was, was the again, the link between the back four and the, the, the midfield, because then after that, his, his most passes went to Sanchez and Iwobi. So he's at least trying to get the ball you know, forward into midfield, you know, one of the things we see when Coughlin plays is that Francis Coughlin's most common passes are to the fullbacks. You know, I mean, it's that safe, give it to the guy out wide on the touchline. And while I don't think there's anything wrong with that, it's safe. Um, I think it shows a lack of progressive passing. Um, I think it shows an unwillingness to try to play into those half spaces ahead. And and I love that, that, Shaka is willing to take the ball, turn, look up the pitch, and and play the ball forward to the, the people that are tasked with creating the real scoring chances. I mean, he, let's see, he played 27 completed pass forward, 24 square, and 17 backwards. So, I mean, his, his most prolific uh, passing move was to pass the ball forward. Um, but I, I wanted to, you mentioned 
where his passes went wrong. And I thought it was interesting that he played. Okay, here we go. I knew I had it here somewhere. He was 19 of 24 on passes in the attacking third, a perfect six of six in the defensive third, and 43 of 45 in the middle third. Um, And actually, that's quite a lot of attacking third passes for someone who is ostensibly the deep-lying playmaker. I guess it's just a question of what we expect him to do. And this is the thing I think is really interesting, you guys. He's not a Coughlin replacement. And we talked about this on WhatsApp a little bit, but he's coming in to be the deep lying playmaker, the, the deepest midfielder. Coughlin yep. wasn't doing that. When he was playing with Cazorla, Coughlin was playing further up the pitch to win the ball back and press aggressively, and Santi was sitting deeper to stitch things together. And that's the role Shaq has taken on with Coughlin out, and Cazorla has pushed forward a little bit more. And so if we miss the energy, I would say it's that Cazorla is never going to quite have the energy and chaos to press the way Coughlin does. Um, the one thing I'll say about Shaka, where I'm disappointed in him, is he looks pretty bad defensively. His positioning is not great. He is not a good tackler. He's not a, a great reader of the game defensively from what I see. He really does strike me as a, as a new Arteta. He is about possession and building the attack from the back and stitching things together. And he's a metronome, um, and, and he will push the attack forward. But I don't see him as being someone who you're going to want to play when we have to sit deeper, when we have to be organized defensively, because he doesn't seem to understand where to be defensively that much, um, which doesn't bother me. But I, I just think it's going to be interesting because you'd say, well, that's what Coughlin's good at, but that's not how Coughlin's been deployed this season. It's really interesting. It's a really interesting dynamic. I've been very impressed with him. I realize that other people want to see more, and I'm probably seeing things just because I want to see things. There's always a part of that, too. But it'll be something to monitor as the season goes on. I think what'll be interesting after the international break is Coughlin should be available again, and it'll be curious to see if he just gets his place back. That's going to be really it fascinating. certainly will. Um yeah. So let's talk about a player who, who was really a star um, in, unexpectedly, and that's Skodran. 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 Mustafi. Um, his school, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> looked, looked a little ropey when he first came into the side, but we're starting to see what he brings now. And it's not just uh, his defensive prowess, because I would say that he's better defending in space than maybe he is defending deeper, you know, uh, closer to goal. But it's his passing. Uh, it's it's what he does with the ball in possession that is really noticeable. Paul, how impressed were you with Mustafi on the day? Extremely. I thought he was... I think I remember him being slightly dodgy with some of his basic passing early in the first half. And, I, and it that just seemed like the first half. You know, to me, granite, if he missed a few passes, it was in the first half. It seemed like everybody... It was one of those games where everybody contributed their shit in the first half. Uh, but overall, I mean, I thought he was, I think his distribution is outstanding. And I think it was in this game. And there was a couple of times he swung over to kind of the Bellerin right back position when we were as the attacking position of a, of a right fullback and swung in some crosses. And he has a beautiful delivery. I think we'll see a lot of that going mm-hmm. forward. Um, and you look at him and Kishel, I mean, it, it's something to to catch the eye more than Koscielny from a defending standpoint, you know, with your heroics and your run. There was one time where uh, Mustafi is running back, uh, covering his guy, and Koscielny's doing that thing where he covers the other center back because he's faster than him. Mm-hmm. And it's like they're running along, and the three of them are running along. And I think 
Kishelny suddenly feels a bit stupid because he's surplus to requirements. Kind of Mustafi now has this. It's it's not Per. It's not somebody else. You know, Mustafi can cover. I mean, they, don't get me wrong. They work well together, and it was nice. But it did look like he suddenly felt, hmm, I probably didn't need to cover this. And then later on, it was the reverse. Um, Mustafi cut in behind Kishelny and covered him when uh, somebody knocked in a ball behind Kishelny. Not that anybody was in trouble, but it, it's you see with Mustafi the same kinds of heroics you you see with Kishelny, which is wonderful. And you've got this distribution. I thought it was interesting as well when when um, uh, Wenger said that uh, he started talking about Mustafi about him being a leader, and then he kind of fa- caught himself and said, "Well, Kishelny's." Uh, a leader because he's captain right <laughs> uh, but Mustafi's a leader and he's a leader with his distribution and he's a leader with you know so you can see that Wenger thinks it has been extremely pleased with how Mustafi has come along so I really think I mean it's got to be obvious that's the partnership anybody else would have to display so I thought it was excellent I think the distribution thing means you got you know if you're playing Kakala then at least you have one more distributor from from deep along so you got Kazorli, you got Kakala, um sorry, you got Kazorli, you got Mustafi to aid with the fact that Kakala isn't the greatest to drop in deep and picking up the ball for when we're playing with him. And uh, of course with uh Chaka and with Kazorla, um you've got some real really good options for distributing and passing and building from the back. So I think he's going to be a really big deal. I think also you can argue that we have one of the best defenses in the league, mm-hmm. uh, whether we're sitting deep. Uh, uh, I've heard the reservation on him playing from deep. Uh, I, I don't get it yet. I don't, see, I don't see anything that he's done that isn't just a guy who's settling into a team and, and not even much wrong from that standpoint. I think he's been great. Uh, first couple of games, him and Kashelny shared a bit of clown shoes, but that's only perfectly natural, especially when they're so similar and therefore will try and run to save the same fires. I think well, he's been fucking great. Yeah, I think look, he's been a stand- I mean, you, yeah. can, you can write off poor performances as they're learning their role, and I think that's perfectly fair, but you're saying where does the criticism come from? It comes from those early performances, right? I mean, when when it wasn't clear if that partnership was going to work – and you can't make a judgment that early, but that's where the concern came from. And I think the concern has been answered with a resounding, yes, the partnership works. I think it works in particular because we are more front-footed now, and we we are able to play a higher line now in a way that doesn't seem like suicide, (laughs) which has not been the case in the past. Um, You know, I always thought that in this game, too, if we had gotten a goal, we would have made life a lot easier for ourselves. I think on the rare times that Burnley did attack... That's when we looked most dangerous. We'd win the ball off them, and and we had some clear counterattacking opportunities. You know, it's worth mentioning in their home fixtures this season, they beat a pretty decent Watford side two nil. Well, I say decent. We destroyed Watford, but Watford destroyed United. So who knows? But you know, they won two nil at home to Watford. They drew one one with Hull, but they beat Liverpool at home two nil. So you know, it's not like they've just laid down and rolled over at home. They they've been a tough team, and we we did get the win. Let's jump to some some incidents in the match and maybe the best thing, Tim, unless do, do you have anything uh, specific on Mustafa you want to add quickly? Um, I, I think the only thing I'd add is I, I agree with you that um, it's, 
it's better that everyone in the team is quite front-footed. I, I think that's just much better if everyone's kind of singing the same hymn sheet. What I do think will be interesting is because Mustafa and Koscielny are a bit similar, I'll, I'll be interested to see over the next year whether um, Koscielny's role, for want of a better word, will change because he's 31 now and, you know, happens to us all. We all slow down. Um, and whether Wenger thinks that actually if he loses a bit of his bombast, shall we say, that actually he might become, you know, really become the senior partner of the central defence in more ways than one. And he's been given the captaincy this year. He's been given more responsibility. Wenger's been talking up Koscielny's mentality a lot. And I wonder if this is a way of um, Koscielny gradually kind of taking over, you know, the leadership of the team from Pair in more ways than one. And, while not becoming, you know, Murtasaka, whether he slows down and becomes that slightly more cultured, experienced defender, I think we might start to see that in the next year and eight, year to eighteen months from Lauren Koscielny. Yeah, and he he's quickly become one of those we have to do everything in our power to hold on to him if we want to achieve anything kind of players, right? Yeah. Um, he he's arguably, you know, I mean. Defense is never going to be as as exciting as attack, but he's arguably the first name on the team sheet right now. Um, yeah. Let me ask you about Mesedoza really quickly. Is it possible that you can just look at today and say, or not today, but this game and say, we didn't play better because Ozil didn't play better? I mean, it's so rare these days that he has a stinker, but by his very high standards, this was a stinker. Um and in particular, when there were clear opportunities for him to either score himself or create a goal for somebody else, and he made wrong decisions and he had poor touches. I mean, you ne- the one thing you never see is poor first touches from him, um, and he had a few on the day. Is it a case of, you know, I mean, I, I, I hate to put all this responsibility on him, but Tim, at some point, your, your prodigal attacking talents become responsible at some level for making the, the plays that define the game. And he didn't do that on the day. C- can you put some of the, the sort of stale final third performance just down to Ozil having a, a rare off day? Yeah, I think so. I think a lot of it. And like you say, that's because of how good he is and how important he is. And it, it was a pretty rare off day. I mean, he's he didn't, he didn't start the season brilliantly. And I think that was purely down to the Euros. Um, and if you look around the Premier League, I think there's a lot of players that are at the Euros that are not firing yet. And you see this after every tournament, particularly for the players that went quite far, like um, Mike Ozil did, you know, playing every minute of every game for and, Germany. And Tim, to your point, he was the player that Arson did lean on coming back, if you want yeah. to call it, too early. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and actually his performance, his performance has been kind of better in recent weeks, but I think it's more, you know, you look against Basel and, you know, don't get me wrong, he was great, but at the same time he missed some sitters, he missed some really easy chances. So I don't think he's quite there yet. And I think what happened yesterday was it, it's a little bit chicken and egg because we were a little bit more static in the attacking sense. And I think that was largely because of the job Burnley did. And actually what you probably saw was a slight regression to the Ozil from like March, April last year when, and, and I don't think this was his fault at all, his game kind of dried up because Arsenal's game dried up and Arsenal's game became static and a little bit listless and basically everything was on him creatively. 
And uh, I think that was a situation that Burnley forced, really, by the way they played. It was, by, by nature, they didn't allow us to do this fluid kind of interchanging thing where Ozil's actually been a really good attacking threat in his own right in terms of scoring goals. But we, we saw almost like a little bit of a regression to, right, Ozil is the number 10 and we're going to give him the ball and we're going to hope he can create something. Um, and his, his radar was a little bit off and... You know, you compare that to Alexis, for example, who got into some similar spaces and, and I thought did a little bit more with the ball and actually looked more of a threat creatively. So, yes, he certainly had an off day. I think that's certainly contributed to Arsenal having a little bit of an off day attacking-wise. But actually, I think the majority of it was just because of the way Burnley played. And there's just there's no there's no easy way of dealing with it. And if you don't score like an early goal, or you don't take your first chance, it's really difficult. And Burnley showed that against Liverpool. You look at um, Manchester United against Hull uh, back in August. They 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 won it with a Rashford goal right at the death. And they had exactly the same problem with Hull. They had you know just like nine ten players behind the ball. And if if it gets to 70 minutes and you still haven't scored, then it, it just becomes a slog. And I think that took its toll on everyone. So, yeah, I, I don't think Herzl bought his A game, but at the same time, Burnley kind of forced that with the way they played as well. And, and Burnley did what, you know, they executed their game plan very well. On yeah. the other hand, while we're talking about stars who didn't <laughs> maybe play, bring their A game, although Alexis didn't have a perfect game as a striker, I think you could understand the challenges with Burnley. But I thought he grabbed that game, not just at the end, though ironically it's Ozil t- taking that short co- corner that apparently mm. Wenger had a meltdown over and, and Alexis picking out the ball into the box for one of whatever three. Uh, in, a ho- in all the crosses, he got one of the three crosses to hit somebody's uh, noggin. But I thought throughout Alexis willed that game and sparked and fought i thought he was although he didn't get the resort the 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 results and the the maybe the credit wasn't that apparent i thought for me he was man of the match and i'm i'm so pumped about him this year compared to my frustrations that weren't really his fault last year in terms of his performance i i thought he was Mm -hmm. he really was the player that stepped up and what's um Sorry, what's really interesting as well is since he's moved into the striker role, we've um, we've discovered what a great crosser of the ball he is. Um, yeah. That's Ozil's goal at Watford um, last week for Theo against Basel. Uh, and then that cross, that was a brilliant cross into the box. Like, lovely little whip. And, you know, the way he kind of picks it up and, and he hits yep. it early when Burnley aren't really set because they just think it's going to be another short corner. And, and he's, it's got interesting. A nice, he's got a nice bit of whip. Which yeah. you need if you put it in flat, you're fucked with with yeah. the tall. I mean, to pick out Theo, five yeah. foot seven or something, Theo among the Burnley players, you got to be accurate, but you've also got to whip it because it's got to get up, over, and down. So, yeah, and on on the wing, you know, his game started to become a bit predictable in terms of just cutting in and shooting, particularly on the left. Yeah. Um, but now now he's able to move about a bit more when he does get out there and he gets a little bit more space and time he's he's putting some brilliant balls into the box as the game got more ragged towards the end there were some 
moments that it was hard to know what was going on. There were there was a shout for a handball against them in their area that wasn't given, and I, I, I honestly haven't seen it again. I don't know if there was a replay of it on TV at the time. Um, but obviously... It, are you talking about the one where the they were actually kicking it away from goal out of the box or the other one? Where they were kicking it away from goal out of the box, yeah. Yeah. Okay, I, I definitely saw that one. It was like he was doing a crucifix with one arm. I mean, just hit it on the way out. Yeah, I, I mean, and and then obviously the the moment that everybody talked about the goal, um, yeah. I it's funny because it starts from what I thought was just tremendously dumb play, which was taking the corner short. And the manager spoke about it too, that he was furious that they took the corner short. I was convinced the minute we played it short, he was going to blow up. But he let him put the cross in. Theo nods it on. It's definitely not uh, offside. Paul, what's your feeling about whether that's a legitimate goal that should have uh, should have stood? Well, certainly if you see my tweets after the game, I was debating for what reason we definitely didn't didn't get a goal there. But uh, as time went on, I think I've come down with the you can fairly fairly um, argue it's a legitimate goal. It took me about twelve hours to get there, but. You know, and I think we all know the logic, which is, you know, he is on side to begin with. Uh, it seems to be his bo- his foot, according to the match, the day replays I was watching, that connects with the ball. Ox connects with behind his foot, which is why Ox thinks he's he's hit something. Uh, so it's because Shelnew kicks it, so he's not offside. And let's face it, it wasn't deliberate. Uh, and for those who say that the ball was going off target, it was, but. Probably Koscielny might have knocked it in if Ox hadn't kicked the back of his foot. But, uh, you know, that's life. Uh, if Ox hadn't... If you want to look at accidental, it wasn't even a clean Koscielny hit. So, you know, not that it could have been deliberate, but it really was nothing he would have intended, even from a kicking standpoint. So uh, when I look at the goal, I, if it was the other way around, and I, I felt this way before... If it was Burnley, I would have said, you know what? At the end of the day, it's fucking fair enough um, in that as long as it's not offside, two guys bundle the ball into the back of the net. Um, They were the hungrier in the last 30 seconds a minute Uh, was a cleverly. Yeah, I get the the banging the ball into the box, but I'd sooner take the risk and referees never. I'm sorry that. If you had that happen a hundred more times, ninety-nine out of a hundred, the ref would blow up when you play. It no, short. he would not. Absolutely, they, no. They it, always, they always. You show, you find me one replay. I'll find you a hundred. How about that? Please, because they always Tim, let a passage settle the argument. Play. I mean, look, the manager himself said he thought it was dumb and that he thought the ref was going to blow there. Tim, settle I the understand. argument. I have never seen a short corner now it's one thing if they knock it deep and knock it back but you show me a short corner where the ball is played towards the box and we immediately knock it in never seen it happen tim um i i think it depends on um the referee i think if the referee is officious (laughs) and he's pissed off with you um maybe if sharud was on the pitch um winding him up no i'm joking (laughs) If if you've wound the referee up, he blows the final whistle. Um, if you haven't, he probably lets you play. I think it's the human element, and I don't think we did an awful lot to get up the referee's nose. Um, but I, you know, 
when the short corner came in, I, I was surprised and not, I mean, everything happened so quickly after that. Um, but I didn't think it was the best option at the time. No. If you're a Burnley fan, you want to be mad at anything. Be mad at letting Theo Walcott rise highest to nod that ball, right? I mean, yeah, you you shouldn't be letting Walcott get get on the end of that first. Or, the, or did you see the Burnley defender that was on the post and he was yeah? Stood there. What did he do? It's like he heard the dinner he bell. <laughs> he just went running away. Oh, textbook. Well, look, I mean, at the end of the day, the most important thing is the three points. I know that's cliche, but in this case, it's true because it is three games in eight days, and it is going into a an international break and leaving on a high and it is um it is following city dropping points so tim in your estimation what is the significance of nicking that at the end how important do you think that can be both for morale and just in terms of what happens next huge huge um in in terms of morale it uh, possibly the international break takes a little bit of that away anyway but I mean, the, the simple fact is, I think Bertie Mee um, said when Arsenal won the double, he said, realistically, even a really, really good team can only be at its best for about 25 to 30% of the games in the season. He said, what happens with champions is how you handle that other 60 to 70% when you're not at your best. And you might not be rubbish, you might just be average. It's just, it's just the way it happens. And, you know... If you're going for a league title, you manage it on a game-by-game basis. And I know it's an awful cliche about taking it one game at a time and all of that. But you, basically, the upshot is there are so many games in a season. You, you're just, you can't be brilliant in all of them. You're going to have ones where you're a bit average, where you're a bit off your game, where the opposition are really up for it. You're going to have games where you're brilliant. You're going to have games where the opposition are useless. In the scope of a season, you're going to get every single type of game and you've got to find a way. And it was possibly a little bit lucky the way we got it in the end. But, you know, we we uh, we got a set piece and we worked it pretty well. And it was a bit of a shambles in the end, the way the ball actually went in. But everything building up to that, you know, the the cross from Alexis, the header from Theo, you know, the movement on the back post was all pretty good. And, you know, basically we found a way to win. And it's not like, you know, it wasn't daylight robbery. We didn't, like... You know, Burnley can feel a little... You know, Burnley kind of deserved the point, I think, for the work they put in. But I don't think they can be massively aggrieved about us winning the game. We dominated it and we had... I know they had some chances. I think we edged them on the chances front. We made all of the running. And I also thought it was a fucking scandal that it was only two minutes. Um, <laughs> yeah, worth of stoppage I've time. never seen two minutes stoppage time at the end of the second this, half of the Premier League. This annoying thing where referees, where the goalkeeper takes ages to take a goal kick. And uh, like time wasting just really winds me up because it's only time wasting if the timekeeper allows it. And what really annoys me is the referee, like he did about four times, like making a signal with his watch to try and hurry him up. And it's like, don't threaten him. Just do it. Just stop your watch. That's totally your call. That's no need yep. that your call. That's your job. So anyway, um, you know, the, we, we were probably at about 50 to 60%. Three games in eight days. We put a lot in against Chelsea as well. A lot of hard work. And this was realistically the last game in the legs of that team, I think, because we didn't change the lineup. So... Um, you've you've got to find a way a lot of the time and actually most of the time you've just got to find a way and we did it and it wasn't hugely undeserved so um, you know I'm I'm pretty pleased with that yeah I mean I, I can think of games last season away to Stoke nil nil 
Home to Southampton, nil-nil. Home to Swansea, lost 1-2. Away to Sunderland, nil-nil. Games that were just poor games that lacked energy that ultimately cost you a title. And if you can find ways to turn those into one-nils, right, or two-ones, it it totally changes the complexion of the season. And, uh, you know, I'm not one of these people that's like, oh, you know, champions aren't measured on how they play when it's going well. They're measured on how they play when it's going poorly. Um, that's a cliche that I don't buy into. I think you want to play well, and the team that wins the title is usually the one that played well over the majority of the season. I don't think we played poorly on the day. I just think we lacked some sharpness in the final third. Goals are not easy to score. That's why games don't end 12-10, um, you know, unless it's against Reading in the League Cup. So, And we should remember the stat. 17 home games, they've conceded five goals. That's less than one every three games. Yeah. I, exactly. I, I just think all all things being equal, this was a case of Arsenal maybe just not having a solution for the final ball, the final third. But but we got it done, and it's going to make a difference to the extent that you're going to have so many games like this that you said, Tim, where where it's not happening for you in the attacking half of the pitch, and and you have to get a break at the end and just keep playing till the end. The other thing I think it does. The good thing about winning a game like this late, you want this to stick in the memory because you want the players the next time the going is getting tough and you're not winning after 75 or 80 minutes or 85 minutes to remember that if you put in 92 minutes of effort, you can get rewarded. You know, 92 minutes and three. And three exactly. Um, I, I think that that is important for players to remember that you know late goals do happen and, and you, you fight hard till the end. There have been games I can remember where it looked like when we ran out of ideas the last 10 minutes or so petered away, and we didn't let that happen here. Um, so great to see. Uh, it's into the international break now. I, I think you couldn't ask for a better run for the club to be on uh, going into an international break, and it, it's just all looking like it's headed in the right direction. It'll be very interesting to see with Cochran coming back to fitness and, and Ramsey coming back to fitness. Do, what does the manager do? What What is the plan for this squad going forward? I think there are going to be interesting questions about how or if Giroud gets back into the team at all and what Lucas's role will be. So there's there's a lot of things the manager has to manage now. Most of them are good things he has to manage, which is spoiled for choice. But I think, And yet, weirdly, not to interrupt your mm-hmm. point, the bench we had, it just goes to show you, doesn't it? You kind of think, oh, all these choices. And you look at our bench against Burnley, so... Well, and the one thing we did season. know is we probably needed another attacking option. But if you look at it, there was no Giroud and no Lucas and no Welbeck. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. so, yeah, we we were definitely limited options-wise there. And it's interesting. There was a rumor that, that some, some journalists apparently had said that Lucas definitely did not have any injury, and that was a fabrication. Ed Malian. I don't, yeah. I don't see – I mean, I guess you could make that up because you're just protecting him from the ignominy of being left out of the squad, but – We'll see. Too early to prognosticate. Paul, thanks so much. You can find Paul on Twitter at Posting in My Pants. Appreciate it. Thank you. Tim, may your future journeys be free of uh, bovine intervention. You can find Tim on Twitter at, uh, at Stilberto. Thanks, Tim. My pleasure as always. Yeah, enjoy the two weeks off from us. We will be back. <laughs> Anybody know what the game is after the international break? Swansea at home. Oh, no problem. I know. I don't, but I know a man who does. Yeah, well, 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 let me tell you two things about that. One, it's a chance to get revenge for what is arguably our worst performance of last season, uh, 4-0, Southampton included. And two, 
uh, there'll be an American in charge of Swansea, so surely they have no chance as Bob Bradley has just taken the job to be their manager. In any event, we'll talk to you after that game. Cheers, and enjoy the two weeks off. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com